from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and make an impact on the world around them. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, here for today's show on activism through the arts with one of Philadelphia's greatest treasures, the amazing Jane Golden, who's the Executive Director of Mural Arts Philadelphia. It's often said that we create our own realities. Today's guest, Jane, has made it her mission to empower citizens to shape the character of their urban landscape and literally paint a more promising image of what can be achieved. Mural Arts Philadelphia is a model for community development around the globe. Through partnerships with community organizations, schools, and agencies, her program has created more than 3,800 works of public art. Walk through Philadelphia, and you will literally feel how her work has changed the character of its neighborhoods. And I've lived here for over 30 years, and I've seen it happen before my very eyes. With her work, art stops being an elitist privilege, and rather it becomes with these innovative and rigorous programs in youth, art education, and restorative justice possible for thousands to experience and witness the power of art, to positively share their voices and shape their own communities. Jane's overseen increasingly complex, ambitious, award-winning public art projects. She's sought after nationally and internationally as an expert on urban transformation through art. In her spare time, she's co-authored three books about murals in Philadelphia and sits on numerous boards and committees. Her awards and honors are numerous and include the 2012 Governor's Award for Innovation in the Arts, an Eisenhower Exchange Fellowship, and a constellation of honorary degrees from schools that includes, I am proud to say, my alma mater, the University of the Arts. If there ever was a woman at work, it is Jane Golden, and I couldn't be more honored to have her with us today. So with that, Jane, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, We've been talking recently with a number of change agents about what motivates them to start um, getting involved in the community around them and making change happen. Are they trying to advance a public good? Are they trying to stop a problem? What made you start working with public art? Well, I give a lot of credit to my parents. I grew up in a family that was... um, very concerned about the world. And so I was encouraged from a young age to think about giving back and to think about the social power of art. Um, My parents were very interested in the work created during the WPA, the 1930s. And it was a time when the federal government supported the arts tremendously, and not just the arts, but some of our parks, our most wonderful park system in this country was things, you know, trails were built, lodges. I mean, there were writers, playwrights were supported. And so I started looking at so the work of social realists at a young age. So when I graduated from Stanford and moved to L.A. and I saw these glorious murals everywhere, for me it resonated in a very personal way that art could serve a social purpose. And I think that set me on a path early on. So in my early 20s, I was just cognizant that I loved art, but I didn't think it was enough to just paint in a studio. For me, that felt like I was very isolated and disconnected. As as much as I support art for art's sake, I want to be clear. Of course, I, like totally support it. But <laughs> but for um, you, but it, for me, the pull was yeah. to have it be impactful in a larger way. Yeah, I think the notion that. Um, beauty, that beauty was something that belonged to everybody, mm-hmm. um, that that started percolating at a very young age for me. It's fascinating because I know in 
as we emerge, as we grow as artists and we emerge as creative people, the question of where you want your impact to be. Is, are you contributing to the development of the art form itself or is it about where the art gets seen, how it gets made, who makes it? That's right. Those are all really good questions. And I think who's who's being represented, who's doing the representing. I mean, I think that for me, it just felt like, you know, it w- these were issues around equity. And so I, you know, and I think when you're out in the public realm creating, then you, you start to see the world in a different way. Um, strangers become friends. And Things that would not be personal become intimate. You start having conversations with people about politics and neighborhood issues and social concerns in ways that wouldn't happen. And then I think when I came back east uh, and I started working for the Anti-Graffiti Network, that was like getting three graduate degrees and understanding, you know, how cities impact neighborhoods and community organizing and, you know. So roll back for a minute. Let's yeah. explain to the people who aren't from Philadelphia what the Anti-Graffiti Network is, okay. how it functioned, and then how you got involved. There. Sure. Well, you know, um, in 1984, Philadelphia had a, a new mayor, our first African-American mayor, Wilson Good. It was a very exciting time. And at the, at the same time, they had a huge graffiti crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, like property owners would clean it one day, it would reappear the next. It was everywhere. It was a social epidemic. And I think most people felt like it would never go away. Wilson Good made a campaign promise to reduce graffiti. And he also really made a commitment to neighborhoods and to young people. And he started this anti-graffiti network to to clean up graffiti, but in a very non-traditional way. He said that he was going to work with kids who were writing on walls. And he actually put quite a bit of money on the table, $6 million. He funded this program substantially. And that's $6 million in 1984. Yes, of city a funds. Of money. So government money. I know that's not always popular, but <laughs> I, I do believe that when used effectively and efficiently, government money is critical and you can leverage it with private funds. And so, you know, how else was this, like, crisis going to be eliminated, you know, you had to really go in with a B12 shot. And that's what he did, right? (laughs) Right. And he knew that so many of the young people were creative. And he intuited that they loved art. And so he said that he was going to create um, an art component as part of anti-graffiti. I had come back from Los Angeles. I was very ill at the time. I have lupus. And I was coming up to Hahnemann Hospital for treatments. And I read about that there was a new mayor, there was great excitement, he had made a commitment to communities that resonated with me. And in this article I read, Wilson Good, you know, talked about this art component. So I ended up sending my resume to the mayor's office. A little I wrote a let, nice letter, dear dear Mayor Good, you know, I'd be so honored to work for your administration. And a few weeks later I got a call from the man who was head of arts and culture, this uh, fellow Oliver Franklin. And he encouraged me to come up. He said he knew my work in LA and he uh, introduced me to this this young man, Tim Spencer who was the new head of this anti-graffiti network. And Tim looked at my resume. It was a very quick interview. He said, if you want the job, you can have it. It's $12,500 a year. Your title will be field representative. We don't know what to do with artists. You're not going to have a desk, but we're going to give you some art supplies and good luck. You're going to have a 1,000 kids who are all graffiti writers. I'm like, yay. (laughs) Okay, so I want to pause for a minute because you are, as a small part of the story, you're telling us something important that we've heard from other women who have been powerful change agents where um, you were proactive. You saw something that you were interested in, and so you reached out and said, can I get on board? And that's actually how the job unfolded. 
Yes, I'm a highly opportunistic person. I like to think I'm opportunistic in all the right ways. But yes, I will leap. And I, I've never stopped leaping, actually, since I was hired. And I also <laughs> want to back up because I want to give some credit to the mayor for having this vision. Oh, yeah. You know, and this was an era where it happened to be right when I moved to Philadelphia to come to art school. Having grown up in New York, um, Keith Haring had been all over the New York subways. And I think there was, in small communities, a recognition that there was a connection between graffiti and art, but it wasn't commonly understood or embraced. Where did the mayor's compassion for this come from? Well, I give huge credit to Mayor Good. I really do. And I do whenever I give a presentation around the country, around the globe. Like I have my first slide, which is Wilson Good and Tim Spencer, because it's like, where did it come from? I mean, I think that true leadership is creative leadership. I think mm-hmm. that there are intractable problems and we can give up and we can be cynical and they're overwhelming, right? And we can never discount the role of innovation and creativity to crack the code because you know what? Our traditional interventions are going to fail us. So we could send out legions of people, tons of people to paint out graffiti and it reappeared. Right. But Wilson Good saying, I'm going to give jobs to kids who are writing on walls after they pay their dues, after they do scrub time, if they're creative, they're going to be sent to somebody and they're going to do some creative endeavor. And so, like, I just think, oh, wow, I applaud thinking out of the box. And that's innovative and creative leadership that wound up fueling a whole whole public art movement, but started with problem solving from the position of what government can do to to improve a problem. That's exactly right. And how wonderful was it that the seat of power was open to kids from every neighborhood of the city? That was revolutionary, to be honest with you. Yes. And at a time where we weren't as mindful of the need for these solutions, because you've actually, through the work you've done, which we'll talk more about, changed our understanding of the power of these things. So you've got this $12,000 a year job. It's 1984. You're, you're fresh from the West Coast. Um, and really not much else other than a mandate to go build a program. Right. And a little box of art supplies, magic markers <laughs> and papers. And an undercover police car the city gave you that was dented when you beeped the horn, the trunk flew open. It was oh, so that's mysterious. A riot. <laughs> it was like, OK, we're like Ghostbusters. We're here to like eliminate graffiti. OK. And now you had a degree in art. Did yes. you also study political science? Yes. Did that? How did that help you as you were entering this? Well, it helped me because I think I thought a lot about systems. I thought a lot about government. I was very interested in urban studies. I mean, I really was have always been attracted to politics. I think in another life, I run would love to run for office. I mean, I, you know, I really am drawn to um, issues around urban centers. And so getting this job in anti-graffiti was such a blessing because it was such an integration of all my interests. Yeah, it really brought your passion, your political awareness, and your deep connection to the arts. Exactly. Um, by the way, for those who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with the extraordinary Jane Golden, who's executive director of Mural Arts Philadelphia. Um, so, Jane, when you walked into this role, one of the things that's fascinating to me is how somebody who now sits on top of a, a huge organization, what were the first steps that you took to mobilize and to be both impactful but create some kind of structure to work from? That's a great question. Well, I think the first thing I needed to do was to figure out the world of graffiti. So I felt sort of like an anthropologist. I had to sort of like crack the code on what was the culture? Why were people writing on walls? And I found out there were graffiti gangs and they'd meet on Saturdays and they'd plan their routes and there were well-known graffiti writers and lesser-known ones. And, and how did you find this out? Were well, you talking to people I started in the talking to people immediately. Because remember, like with this budget of $6 million – 
a lot of the money was set aside for kids. So young people could come in, they'd take a pledge where they'd swear they'd never write on walls for the rest of their lives. We knew that wasn't exactly true, but think life is incremental. And then, <laughs> then they would, you know, um, they would get sort of a reward for doing something. And then they were eligible for a job. Okay. And so... I was um, inundated with graffiti writers. They were everywhere in my midst. They were in our office all the time. Even if they didn't really want to be there, they were drawn to anti-graffiti like a moth to a flame. Okay. And they would just hang around. And some of them would confess or talk about their... Because it sounds like (laughs) as a program, as a wisdom to a public program, it was like a safe place to acknowledge that they had been graffiti writers, but there was also a promise of a payoff if they made it through the cycle. That's right. Exactly. We held them accountable, though, and there were... 12 community organizers and me. And every organizer had a part of the city and they had to clean up that part of the city and then they had to think about options for the young people. So for kids who liked art, they were sent to me. And really, it was like 90% of kids came to me. I mean, even my former boss and Wilson Good were always mystified, like, all these kids are going to Jane <laughs> Golden. It's like, what's going on? You know, in fact, I remember one evening we were at this community center and had all these kids. They were painting on easels and they were doing like a still life, like we were at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art. And this was like Baby Rock and M.A. and Cool Earl and like <laughs> Disco Duck. And like the mayor walks in, he goes, what is going on here? And they're here? painting fruit. And they're painting fruit. It's like, and they were telling me all their escapades but I'm like hey I can listen but what I noticed early on from talking to the young people is they had enormous talent what they didn't have were opportunities sadly they just didn't have the options that I had when I was growing up I mean I've had a really privileged life but for young people who have talent and gifts and strength and potential you know we have as a society we have set up a system where it's just not fair and so for kids who wanted to learn about art they didn't have any options so I'm like okay light bulb off in my head, this is our responsibility. Let's offer them every opportunity and option possible. And so that led me to want to like dig dig deep to mm-hmm. figure out why they were writing on walls, to make connections in the graffiti world, and to set up a program that would be palatable to them. So how did you make the transition then? from? So it sounds like the anti-graffiti network you found, it, it, it instantly included art making as part of the process exactly. of engaging. And I knew they'd be good mural painters. So we started building in murals and public art making and, and art programs everywhere from the Philadelphia Museum of Art to a small church in North Philly. So how do we go now from the anti-graffiti network to you're starting to formally make murals as a primary endeavor? Well, what happened is we started doing some small murals and I realized that they loved, they fell in love with mural making. That was my assumption and it was tested by, by this, and they was, was it the publicness of it, the scale of it? It was all those things. They or were the, great, they you're, were, you're painting on a wall with permission. Think about what we had in common. In some way, we had nothing in common, right? But we had this in common, our mutual love of art. But then when you would dig a little deeper, you'd say, oh, they're great wall hunters. They look at spaces. They don't mind working out in bad weather, right? They're, they will climb into strange, up strange like spaces. So they'll, they'll climb scaffolding. It actually and, sounds like the job description of a muralist. Exactly. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so great. And so, and the other thing is when you do work in public spaces, drama occurs all the time. So they were like being challenged to give up the life of the outlaw, right? I wake up at three in the morning, I go right in the dark. (laughs) and, And suddenly it was like, oh, this isn't so bad because I'm getting all this recognition. People seem to love us. We're getting press. We're doing art. We love art and we're getting paid. And so my challenge was, can I lure them in initially 
and then keep them over a period of several years. And the way anti-graffiti was structured is you came in as a volunteer and you could stay years. And we literally worked with 30,000 young people oh during gosh, the anti-graffiti years. We had, had no summer, idea. we had summer programs with 3,000 kids painting murals, contributing to beauty in the city of Philadelphia, changing the built environment. These were kids that had destroyed it, were now giving back in the deepest way possible. It was phenomenal and totally inspiring. So with the kids, how did you see their shift from outlaw impact on walls to it being condoned and supported? Was there an increase in pride? Was there a loss in the thrill? Well, I think there was a loss in the thrill after a while because they became interested in reading about the poet Sonia Sanchez or, you know, looking at people who did graphic design or we would go weekly to the museum, uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art. We would go to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and they would look because they loved Mark Rothko. They loved Hans Hoffman and William de Kooning. They had an uncanny knowledge about abstract expressionism as if they had graduated from college. But they had been they've been like stealing the magazine Art in America for years. So they've been reading like about the abstract painters. And so I was like, look, don't steal the magazines. It's not good. We call that theft. So but so what you want to do is like join the anti-graffiti network and we'll go look at like Mark Rothko in person. We'll look at Picasso and Matisse. And so it wasn't like they just said, oh, my God, yes. First, they were like, we don't want we only want to work with spray. And there was a mandate they could not work with spray paint. Okay. So that was a big thing for them to give up that. So but then I was like, look, where are you guys going to be when you're 25? You've dropped out of high school. And they would say, well, we're going to be famous like Keith Haring. And I'd be like, here's a wake-up call. Only a handful of artists will make it in America every year who can rely solely on their work. You have dropped out of high school. I'm saying, you like to use spray. I'll Like on the weekend, you want to do a spray mural, I'll teach you how to write a contract. I'll introduce you to lawyers. Because they were doing these spray murals and they were never getting paid. They didn't know what, you know, they weren't writing contracts. Right. I said, you're totally getting taken advantage of. I said, so do this for yourself. I said, just learn everything. And then make decisions about where so you want to go. you're giving them both career planning advice, business training, yes. and channeling their creative development, which it's interesting that they were instinctively doing on their own. They just didn't have a guide. That's exactly right. And at the same time, the changes happening in the neighborhoods mirrored the changes happening in my in this team of artists. Because we were going into the neighborhood and with the same kind of advice. Like, what would you like? And people would say, we don't want art. And we'd say, but but what do you want? And people would say, well, actually, no one ever asks us what we want. And then people would say, well, we want Malcolm X or we want Dr. King or we grew up on a family farm in the South. And then we would do the mural and people would, there would be all sorts of excitement. And we would say, what's next? And people would say, really? You're not going away? And we'd say, no. What do you want? And it became like this co-creation, this collaboration where it was we weren't going in with answers. We were going in with questions and really giving people the dignity and respect that they truly deserved. And that's why it was so powerful. And we started to see the murals become a beacon and a focal point and a sign that things could change and that people cared and that government could be effective. And I think intuitively, we sense, and I'm going to say we and not I, because our our group of me and the former graffiti writers, that we sense that we needed to be highly respectful and strategic. Like every little victory we had, we needed to build on it. So bring in other city services, bring in extra programs. And so the people would go from feeling that they were marginalized and on the sidelines and sort of be brought into the fold and see that change was possible, that the narrative did not have to be created for you, that you could have the audacity to dream your own future. And that, to me, was thrilling. And it also sounds like 
you did this in the different direction than governmental intervention usually works. That um, while the government created this opportunity, um, you really took it and ran with it, but it's with the momentum of these involved kids, their participation, their hunger to learn, that you welcomed in others. It's not like they were forced upon you. So the partnerships happened more organically that's and exactly from the right. inside out, that's, that's, which I, it sounds like it was critical to the success. It was completely critical to the success because no one felt like we were being didactic or that it was forced on them or it was dropped down from the sky like, look, here's art in our community, <laughs> right? It was, no, we're going to co-create a vision together. And out of that vision is going to be is going to come other things. And then once other things started happening, it was a tangible sign that art could be really effective. And I think even for the mayor, it was shocking. It was shocking. He probably to never me. anticipated. Never mind that it would be art would be at the center of this. When Wilson Good left officer, we had a giant waiting list. He never thought that. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Jane Golden, Executive Director of Mural Arts Philadelphia. So, Jane, one of the things that I noticed, because I, I moved to the city in 1984 to come to college, and I started to see murals in places. And A, many of them are still up today. And I also noticed that over time, um, the murals have gotten increasingly sophisticated, from an aesthetic point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about the arc of um, how the murals get developed now compared to how they got developed then. Well, I think at Anti-Graffiti, we, we had great spirit and intention, and I think we did good, really interesting work. Yeah, the and mur- I think, many of the murals are beautiful and clearly appreciated by the yeah. communities where they're housed. But I think when we became the mural arts program, suddenly we were a pro-art program. Now, anti-graffiti was closed down in 1996. It was restructured. And I was going to go to law school. And I was very determined. And my brother, who's a lawyer, talked me out of it. And it's encouraged me to go see Ed Randell, who was our mayor then, and to suggest that I run an art program. He, because Johnny was like, you should run an art program for so the city. So again, you're approaching the mayor to say, hi, can I do this? Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Two times in a row. <laughs> and I've never stopped talking to mayors, all five of them. They Many know. of us are grateful. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, so then Ed Randell, thankfully, was like, sh- he was very open to this idea. So he said, come up with a name. And we said, the mural arts program. And he goes, Jane Golden, you're in charge. And I wasn't in charge of much. It was like $100,000. It was like nothing in 1997, 98, you know, 99. And so, um, yeah, so, but then it was like, oh, my goodness, we're a pro-art program. What does this mean? Well, we open our doors to all kids, not just graffiti writers. All kids deserve access to art education. But it also means we need to do approach our work with greater intention, open our doors to emerging artists and established artists, and really think about not just process but aesthetics. And so I think what you see is from 1997, 98 on up, sort of this driving force to really stretch the art form of muralism. That explains maybe another way of putting it is it looked as if it got professionalized in a different way. Right. And so the challenge was how do you professionalize it but not lose that sweet spot of dealing with process collaboration, co-creation, and impact on our constituents. When you created the original murals, um, what were the conditions within the community? Were you just finding an empty wall and having at it? Who did you have to negotiate with? And were there any commitments that it wouldn't be painted over or built over? No, then I think people were so, after, after a while when people would see us, they would be like, oh my God, you know, we're just so happy you're here. So, and we could go, we could be in Strawberry Mansion in North Philadelphia, and we could go 
almost every wall on the block, Mm -hmm. people would say, please do this, please do this, please do this. And so, and we would work at the speed of light. Like, and sometimes we would do little murals. I mean, we were doing like oh, 300 like murals a year. Pop up overnight. Yes, we were just like, like I'm telling you, we had paint in, in this vehicle I had, <laughs> and the, the police car. And we would, are you still in the police car? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> another, another vehicle. But it was just like we would hop out and we would do this and we would meet with people, sometimes a street corner meeting, like right there, where we go to churches, we go to rec centers, we go to people's homes all the time. Mostly every evening I was out at a community meeting and we were talking to people, what would you like? What would you like? What would you like? And it became like contagious. It was so amazing. And people, like, love them. And I remember when we did the Dr. J mural, one of mm-hmm. our first figurative murals, people were literally screeching to a halt, going, oh, my God, it's the doc. And to see Dr. J in a suit, so beautifully painted, it was, like, amazing. And then we did start bringing in visiting artists, and that was really exciting, too. Sometimes the artists were hugely famous, that were, and the artists told me how inspired they were by the young people. So it sounds as if... The community so valued what you were doing that you didn't need to formally protect it. Oh, no. I mean, and that was what was shocking, too. I mean, we've done almost 4,000 works of art since 1984. It's huge, right? And when I present on this work, sometimes other cities will say, oh, but I bet there's a lot of graffiti. I mean, maybe it's like it's a few murals that get defaced every year. And, you know, like one got defaced a few weeks ago and it made the news because it was so unusual mm-hmm. that it would get defaced. And then we will but we have a 24 hour response time. So we're there and we'll fix it. But it's so not an issue because I think the work is respected and protected. And as our work has changed and grown and morphed and become way more complex over time, people are coming. They come with us because we built such strong bonds back in the day. It's a testimony to what happens when you infuse a community with beauty and with something that expresses love and mutual respect. It's hugely powerful, hugely. When you had this initial budget to manage, just one quick question before we take a break. You had you ever managed a budget before? How did you figure out how to put a limited amount of dollars to use as you're mobilizing this program? Well, you know, I, I have to say, so, you know, I was really a painter, a muralist, even though I was a, a double major at Stanford and I thought eventually I'd go to law school. I really wasn't sure I'd go to law school. So, I mean, when I was at anti-graffiti, I mean, I was going year to year to year and seeing this, you know, like success with kids and just sort of intuitively doing this. It's not like I knew a lot about what I was doing. I mean, I want to be clear. It's like, but then when we became mural arts and suddenly like I had a budget and I was like in charge of this like arts organization, you know, I really, I I learned... I've always tried to surround myself with people who know more than I do. I'm not intimidated by people who are super smart. I love them. People who are creative, I try to follow them and read about them. I read about best practice around the country and the world continually. I feel like I'm a sponge and I soak up information and I'm not afraid to fail or course correct. And I've always been incredibly determined and tenacious. Jane, it's incredible because we now get the benefit of learning from you. Um, This is fascinating, and I can't wait to continue it after the break. Stay with us. After the break, Jane and I are going to continue talking about how we promote societal change through the power of the arts and collaboration. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you are listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and make an impact on the world around them. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're talking to, really, one of our most successful experts in social impact through the arts. I have the extraordinary honor and pleasure of being joined by Jane Golden, Executive Director of Mural Arts Philadelphia. Welcome back, Jane. Thank you. This is so great. (laughs) So in the first half of our discussion, we were talking about your journey into the graffiti, the anti-graffiti network, and how that then sparked your work with mural arts, that once again, you approached a mayor and said, hi, sign me up. I'm ready to do this. Since that time in like 1996, 97, mural arts has grown to be a beloved treasure of Philadelphia. Thank you. Murals are almost defined sections of the city in ways they didn't before. Um, And to me, it represents this meeting of now high art in public that's a reflection of the community. How do you navigate those intersections? Because often those are worlds that stay very separate. Yeah, I think it's really difficult. I think it's complex work. But I think first you have to acknowledge that it's complex and understand it and go into it with um, allowing for a lot of, you know, give and take and room for negotiation, but you also set parameters. You know, it's sort of like, well, the artist is going to have the final say on the design, but the content will come from the community. And that the artist has to be respectful of the fact that this this work really belongs to the community. And so there's sort of a mutuality that that is developed that I think allows the work to breathe and live in the site in a way that is successful. Now, I will say that it could take three meetings. It could take a dozen meetings. um, But we've had to really work on that process so it doesn't become art sort of created by everyone but mm-hmm. it's inspired by everyone, and there's See, a difference. I want to break this down because what I, I've i seen a dynamic happen that when you try and solve a problem creatively, never mind make art, it can often get um, diluted by finding a, the common denominator. And um, it can also be very challenging to navigate all of the emotions and agendas, aesthetic and social, that are mm-hmm. in the room. Um, in your typically gracious and generous way, Um, You use we when you describe this, but you are the leader. How Mm -hmm. do you facilitate this kind of mutual respect and process so that it doesn't have to be reinvented every time you do one of the 3,800 murals you've done? Well, I would say by this time, it's sort of in in our core values – live sort of the tenets of social justice, of collaboration – when you hear Mural Arts Philadelphia, I want people to think about access, opportunity, equity, justice. Those mm-hmm. are things I want people to think about. I want people to think beyond the project, who are the constituents that created it? We work with the behavioral health system. We work with people coming home so, from prison. We work with people you know, who are chronically ill. We, work with, we have 2,000 kids in our art education programs. Many of them are kids who've totally fallen through the cracks but are wonderful and deserve and have the right – to, to art and beauty. So you start with who who are you, who's your audience, who are your makers, who are your stakeholders? Yes, and we, I think what we've done is we've shifted the paradigm about how public art is made. When we started doing public art 
way back when, people would say to me, that's not public art. And I would say, I'm in the public doing art. You tell me why this isn't public art. Right. And they would say, no, sculpture is public art. Uh, Murals the, aren't. Were they thinking about the 1% for art? That's right. It's exactly. a policy here in Philadelphia where yeah. with every new building, right. 1% of the budget has to get devoted to public right. art. And it's usually a sculpture. Right. So, But here's the sweet thing about this, right? If you do this work long enough, the universe bends towards justice. <laughs> because now everybody everywhere talks about social practice. It's like a, museums, your top museums are trying to do community work. They're doing work that we've been doing for 30 years. <laughs> I'm like, true. oh my God, you're late to the party. <laughs> but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> exactly, because you really, learned, you really ta- taught us all how to throw this party. So you start with the community and whose needs are you trying to meet? Who are you trying to to inspire who lives there. That's right. But murals happen five, our projects, I should say, because it's not just murals happen five ways. One, you come in, people come in on our waiting list. Mm-hmm. So that's one way. And artists as have, artists or as having walls that they want painted? Uh, it could be both. Okay. Because we, we leave room for artists' ideas as well. Then our staff, they too, there's a certain percentage of work that happens every year. Our staff identifies artists they want to work with that line up with our core values. Okay. Um, the city has a major initiative they want us to work on. A funder has a major initiative. Um, so, or it comes out of one of our bodies of work. We have five departments at Mural Arts. So it could be art ed, behavioral health, criminal justice, one of those areas, or mural and making. And that may shape where it's located, what the theme is. That's exactly right. Okay. And so if you look at our artistic plan every year, you'll see big projects, medium, small. You'll see some things that are stained glass or ceramic or sculptural, temporary. Yeah, I've noticed that over time, it's a mixed. The, um, you see the first... Um, wave that really got my attention was starting to see how sophisticated the imaging was. That's right. And um, the conception of the images and their execution is superb. Thank you. But I think, so we have a responsibility to mural arts, I feel I do, to mural arts, to the city, Mm -hmm. deeply to the city, but we also have this obligation to the field of muralism. And so we ask ourselves, what is muralism in the 21st century? What is our obligation to the field? Because I feel like we're part of this grand tradition of the Mm -hmm. Mexican muralists and the WPA and political art in Chicago, LA, San Francisco. And now it ended up in Philly being the torchbearer. But when you're sort of a leader, what does that even mean to be a leader? It means that you need to be continually inventive and creative and to make sure that your impact is real and that the work has integrity. I love that while your initial motivation was about bringing art to people that didn't have art in their lives and transforming um, their physical space. That as Mural Arts as a program grew, you accepted and almost embraced a responsibility to contribute to the growth of the art form. That's exactly right. Because you really are creating the new standard. You're shaping the art form in powerful ways. And it's not just in its where it is and who's involved, but it's also in its quality, in its techniques, in its materials, in its endurance. That's right. Exactly. That that that's right. And that makes our hearts sing. So so thank you. <laughs> that that really means a lot because I feel like we can never stand still because if we're standing still we're going backwards. And so we have to be working on lots of fronts all the time, programmatically, with projects, with our practice, philosophically, so socially. On that note, talk to me about um So there's this arc where it's about public art, but there's also workshops that you're doing, ways you're engaging thousands of people in different ways. Talk to me about what else um, 
your work includes that's not manifesting specifically in a mural? Well, pe- what people are not seeing is our Porchlight program, where we use art to overcome the stigma of mental health issues, where we work with people who've suffered great trauma, a range, grappling with a range of mental health issues, addiction, a homelessness, and that we are in agencies three days a week, year round, and doing huge participatory public art projects. And we have data from the Yale School of Medicine. They followed us for four years that talks about the impact both on individuals and on community. When we are recently, we did a big project with people struggling with addiction, and I would make site visits, and people would follow me to my car and say, I no longer feel like an addict. I feel like an artist. And that is a beginning for someone. Art has a transcendent power, I believe So when you're reaching into these communities, Mm -hmm. again, going back to people with a need where they can't express themselves, they're not being understood, um, they're making the art that's turning into the public art project? That's correct, under the direction of master muralists. And then for people who are interested, they stay with us. We have like, they're like, a lot of these artists have like an entourage. So people have been, some people have been like assistant muralists for five, six years. And it's a way out of the darkness for them. So every division at Mural Arts, there are pathways leading to success. And if we're not doing that, there's something wrong, right? So if people want to start to get involved on these pathways, let's talk about different categories of people that want to get involved with you. So let's start with artists who are looking to contribute to art making that you're doing. So if you're an artist out there, if you want to come in, there are several ways to come in. You can come in through the muralist training program. You can come in as an assistant on a project. Those are two really great ways. You, people can start. We have something called Mural Lab, which is our series. It's a lecture series. Come Start coming to that. We have a great volunteer program. People can volunteer. So that's one way. Or we see pathways up for our kids in art education. Mm-hmm. I've seen them go from people stay because you can stay with us for years. You come in in sixth grade, you stay till twelfth grade. We help navigate your next step in life. So you don't need and then summer you're an camp. Assistant you can teacher. come to mural come arts. Come to mural arts and stay. <laughs> right. And then I mean, if you're in the criminal justice system, how many people have we started working with them when they were behind the bars? They come out, they start working in our guild program. We train you in construction landscaping and mural making. You reclaim civic spaces. You get paid. We have a jobs developer on staff and a social worker. We help navigate your next step in life. But maybe, like this this guy, Jesse Crimes, who was in, I can talk about him. He talks about this publicly. He was in federal prison seven years. He came out. He's He worked with us for three years. He's represented by a gallery in Chelsea. Oh, my He's God. having shows in Paris, So you've New York. not just, you've not only cut down on recidivism, but you've actually taken the... Uh, taken this um, community that you've built, brought new people into it who are launching their lives in increasingly impactful ways. How do we make a city healthy? You have to push out on lots of fronts. How do you fight poverty? You better think about it in all different ways, right? Because if you're going to crack the code, if you're going to move the needle, then you, I feel that creativity, that art making, that the power of beauty is part of that equation. Without a doubt. So with the minute that we have left, where can people go to find out more about mural arts and how to get involved, whether it's as an artist, whether it's in any of the programs, or in bringing it to a community in need? Well, muralarts.org, our website is terrific. It's chock full of information. You know, please go to it. There are many ways to get involved. But also know, for all your listeners out there, we're not just working in Philadelphia. We are working with cities across the country and across the globe. And we're about to form a civic institute. So if you're interested, please reach out to us. Oh, my God. That's so excited. So I didn't know that you were going global. 
Yes, we're doing a pro- we're doing a project in Cuba as I speak. <laughs> oh my God, Jane! Makes it even more amazing that you're here with us today. And if people want to um, tweet or get involved, you can be your your Twitter handle is at Jane S Golden, and mm-hmm. there's at Mural Arts. And once again, that's um, muralarts.org. Jane, quickly, what's next for you, Cuba? Well, Cuba, I just got back from, um, I was in uh, Colombia for for uh, two weeks with the State Department, so we're very excited about some opportunities there. Um, and there are 200 cities across the country where we're working, but we're hugely loyal to Philly, and we have a big vision for the next few years of what we're going to accomplish in this city. Well, Jane, I'm going to be excited to talk more as things unfold. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's really an honor. And I'd also like to extend a special guest, not just to Jane, but to our producer, Patty Hall, our associate producer, Ali Freed, who I think had a particular pleasure doing the research for today's show, our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis, and uh, I'm Laura Zarrow. You have been listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'm so happy to bring you a portion of a previous interview I did with another radical woman, Kim Scott, author of the great new book, Radical Candor, about how we can really all work together, talk honestly, be brave, and make new things happen. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'm delighted to bring you a snippet of an interview I did with the amazing Denise Restori, the founder and CEO of Girlquake, and the moderator of Forbes.com's Mentoring Moments. Denise is going to talk with us about how she learned to listen and the impact it makes on the lives around us. I'm Laura Zarrow, and delighted to bring you a snippet of an interview I did with the amazing Denise Ristori, founder and CEO of Girlquake, um, and who you may know as the woman behind Mentoring Moments on Forbes.com. This will be another chance to learn just what's possible when we learn to listen.